Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. In this new limited series entitled The Power of Partnerships, we connect medical professionals and patients across the care continuum for real conversations about lung cancer. Each episode will focus on one facet of this complicated field and feature the people striving to make it better. Hi, I'm Doug Wood. I'm the chair of surgery at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I'm very pleased to be joined by some of my colleagues and part of this series of podcasts of the National Lung Cancer Roundtable and the American College of Radiology looking at issues around lung cancer screening. There have been many great podcasts already that have looked at this issue of screening from different angles. And today we're going to look at it relating to the thoracic surgeon's role in lung cancer screening, both in the aspect of the role within lung cancer screening programs, as well as the importance of thoracic surgeons in evaluating nodules and providing the benefit of lung cancer screening, that is, surgery for lung cancer that's discovered, and the avoidance of harm from lung cancer screening, that is, minimizing unnecessary testing or surgery for patients who do not have cancer. So I'm joined by three of my colleagues from around the country. I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves just before we get started. Dr. Bacchus, I'll start with you. Hello, everyone. My name is Leah Bacchus, and I'm a thoracic surgeon at Stanford University. I am very actively involved in our lung cancer screening program, and I'm really excited to be here to talk about this important topic. Great. Welcome, Dr. Bacchus and Dr. Varghese. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Varghese. I'm the head of thoracic surgery at the University of Utah. Honored to engage on this incredibly important topic for everyone. Thank you, Dr. Varghese. Dr. Farjo. Good afternoon. My name is Farhid Farja. I'm a thoracic surgeon at the University of Washington and affiliated with the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. So with all of your expertise, I have a few questions I want to talk with you about. And I'm going to start with Dr. Bacchus. Can you tell us a little how the screening program is organized at Stanford and what role do you and the other surgeons have in the lung cancer screening program there? Well, first I'll start off with the caveat, of course, or disclaimer, if you will, that, you know, you've seen one screening program and you've seen one screening program kind of, because I think in large part, they really have to be right-sized and tailor-made to the geography, to the patient population, to the healthcare system, et cetera. So there's going to be a whole lot of at least potential for heterogeneity, but of course, there should be some common elements that carry through for each of them. So the way that we've set things up at Stanford, it sort of follows our footprint, if you will geographically, such that we have three main outpost sites, one in the East Bay, one obviously at Stanford main campus, which is in the peninsula, but then one in South Bay, and then one's in Pleasanton. So it's sort of like East Bay, South Bay. So the point is that there are three main sites that are satellite sites in addition to the main hospital. And at each of those sites, we have one to two clinicians who are one, a pulmonologist, one, a thoracic surgeon, and then a nurse practitioner. And the nurse practitioner is really critical because the ones that do the shared decision-making visits for patients. And I have to say, it has been really one of the positive byproducts, if you will, of the pandemic and the surgeons of telemedicine, because the fact that each of these sites is anywhere from 20 to 50 miles apart 
it's incredibly helpful to be able to pull in telemedicine to get our nurse practitioners connected to patients at times that are convenient to the patient, et cetera, and really try to be responsive to those who are otherwise interested in getting their screening done. So those are the main structures, and they all sort of feed in centrally in terms of positive findings and follow-up. So it sounds like you kind of have a three-part partnership in each of your sites that consists of a pulmonologist, a thoracic surgeon, and an advanced practice provider? Correct. So surgeons are kind of integrally engaged within your program. Exactly. Okay. So on that aspect, Dr. Varghese, can you tell us some of the reasons that surgeons ought to be directly involved in a screening program? And what would you say to surgeons, to some of your colleagues in thoracic surgery, to encourage them to be engaged in their programs? And what would you say to programs to encourage them to get their thoracic surgeons directly involved, like Dr. Bacchus has described at Stanford? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question, Dr. Wood. I think that the first way I would answer that question is imagine the viewpoint from the patient. You know, a patient wants to do what we call one-stop shopping. They want to go to one place where they can discuss with a content expert about what's going on with them. Is this highly suspicious or not for lung cancer? And what do we do about it? Let's say that a surgeon is not involved and a patient goes somewhere else and then the conversation is, well, we think this is early lung cancer. Well, now the patient has to be referred to yet another place to get that conversation taken care of. And so I think for surgeons, it's critically important for them to be involved so that the patient is presented with all the different options of what to do with a lung nodule that's incidentally found. Now, whether the surgeon runs that lung cancer nodule clinic by themselves or like we do, similar to what Dr. Backus said at Stanford, where we do it co-owned by multiple disciplinaries so that, again, the patient is arriving at a multidisciplinary lung nodule clinic, that's something, you know, dealer's choice. But a surgeon really needs to be involved with that because that's, in my opinion, the best possible care they can provide for them. And then I think the second fold is the benefit for the community and referring doctors in general. You know, they don't want to look through some fancy, complicated algorithm and try to figure out where this patient goes. They, again, want to send the patient to one place where they know that a variety of different content experts will be able to assess that patient, weigh in, and then give the patient the best advice of what to do next. Okay, that's great. Thank you for explaining that. And Dr. Farja, you're very involved in the lung cancer screening program at the University of Washington. What have you learned from this involvement? What have you gained from it? And in what ways have you as a thoracic surgeon influenced the program or how have you influenced maybe other members of the multidisciplinary team? Thanks for that question. I think there's at least a couple things I've learned. And first is that thoracic surgeons are a key component of a multidisciplinary lung cancer screening and nodule team. At our institution, we have a lung cancer early detection and prevention clinic where thoracic surgeons, pulmonologists, and chest radiologists review patients in a tumor board style fashion prior to the patient being seen by a pulmonologist later in the morning. And as thoracic surgeons, we obviously provide perspectives on the suitability and appropriateness of surgical resection, but we do other things. So we contribute opinions on the optimal and efficient diagnosis and staging of presumed lung cancer. And we can do so because of a large array of procedures that we do, such as endobronchial ultrasound or EBUS, mediastinoscopy, navigational and robotic bronchoscopy, and thoracoscopy. And 
Additionally, given the growing number of opportunities for targeted individualized therapies, we can provide guidance on when to pursue comprehensive biomarker testing at the time of diagnosis and staging so we maximize the efficiency of the workup. You know, we can predict an interventional radiologist's ability to biopsy the lung, the liver, the adrenal gland, or even a bony lesion. And because of our close collaborations with medical and radiation oncology, we can oftentimes predict their recommendations whether it's radiation therapy for inoperable patients or multi-modality therapies for locally advanced lung cancer or systemic therapy for patients with stage four. So to summarize the first learning point, I think that, you know, we bring a perspective that spans a large swath of the lung cancer care continuum. The second thing I learned is that thoracic surgeons can play a role in promoting population health. And that's because we have considerable experience leveraging benchmark data to improve performance, engage stakeholders, and lead programs. At our institution, we do not have a centralized screening program, so my thoracic surgical colleagues and I partnered with our population health program to promote lung cancer screening. So we did so in several ways. We led an initiative in collaboration with primary care physicians to create a dashboard that gives them information on their individual clinic and individual primary care clinician screening rates. We helped design interventions that leveraged health system resources to obtain lung cancer risk factor information so that our primary care physicians and their staff wouldn't have to do that. We went on a speaking tour to make sure our primary care physicians knew about our imaging services and our specialty resources. And finally, we were able to bridge gaps in resources. So for instance, the pulmonologists who led our lung cancer early detection and prevention clinic were very forward thinking. They had the patient-facing documents in English translated into several different common non-English languages. And it's because the surgeons knew about this resource, we were able to extend it to our primary care physicians who had no such resource for shared decision-making and patient education. So these are just a number of things that I've learned at our own institution, and it's a unique delivery of lung cancer screening. Yeah, Dr. Farja, those are great contributions. And I'm just going to say, I've also seen you in action, and I'm going to postulate that your involvement in a multidisciplinary setting has made you think a little bit more like a pulmonologist and has also made the pulmonologist think more like a thoracic surgeon, to both of your benefit. Indeed. So I'm going to shift a little bit here, moving from kind of the aspects of the program in general, and then what happens within a program that thoracic surgeons influence a great deal. And that's what happens when there's a finding, when there's a lung nodule developed or noted on CT screening. Dr. Bacchus, I'm going to turn back to you. What happens at your program when a lung nodule is identified? Who decides the next steps? Do you usually see the patient at that time or only after they've had a biopsy that's shown cancer? Yeah, well, the short answer is it's in between. So it's not necessarily just for any abnormality, but it's also not at the very tail end where all the decisions have been made otherwise. So the first abnormality obviously depends on the lung rads score, right? And so the early lung rads lesions are for the most part going to just be followed by protocol algorithms by whatever set of algorithm one screening program chooses to follow, whether it's Fleischner guidelines or what have you, in determining their next follow-up and that sort of thing. But when they get up to the suspicious, you know, like lung rads four, 
then we're really going to definitely have to have a multidisciplinary discussion about those patients, you know, because it's not just a guideline at that point. You've got to have the appropriate work of an algorithm that fits the patient. And if you've got a new lung nodule, but the patient has a recent history of colon cancer, that's a little bit of a different deal than, you know, someone who's a never smoker and has a pure GGO, but that has a pure ground glass nodule, but that has a growing solid component versus someone who's just got a de novo big tumor. It's all over the map. And because of that, you can't be too prescriptive. Each individual is going to have to be analyzed and come up with the plan. And that's when we have the multidisciplinary discussions. Yeah, got it. And you've talked about algorithms. So I'm going to turn that to Dr. Varghese. Dr. Varghese, does your program use an algorithm for nodule management? And if so, which one and why? Great question. I mean, similar to what Dr. Backus said, we most often use the Fleischner criteria, but we've recently actually started embracing the concept of risk stratification of the nodules itself. And I'll be honest with you, there are so many out there, I can't remember any of them. So what I do is I do a Google search and say STS lung nodule and automatically pops up. There's a nice website on the STS website itself, and it ranks the different risk calculators. And so the one we use the most common in our program is the Brock University one. And the one I really like about it is because you can put in their patient characteristics, you know, do they have emphysema, the size of the nodules, but then you can also put in the description of the actual nodule itself. Is it solid? Is it semi-solid ground glass? All those different factors, and then right away it just pops up with the percentage of how high a risk it is or predictive of lung cancer itself. Well, you know, with that last part of your answer, you anticipated the next thing I was going to ask you, which is about (laughs) risk calculators for lung nodules. So you've already answered that. But let me do a follow-up then to that. Now that you've done that for a while, how closely do those risk calculators match your clinical suspicion or your multidisciplinary view in both directions? I mean, how many underestimate or overestimate when you compare it to the experienced clinicians? Yeah, it's remarkable. Actually, I think in our anecdotal experience about this, it's pretty spot on. I mean, I think that a very experienced clinician who's been following nodules for many years has a body of knowledge that they can easily tap into, but it's still nice to get validated by an objective risk calculator at the same time. But I would say it's pretty spot on in terms of the percentage correlation between the two. Can I just add in there, Dr. Wood, that I think another valuable point from those calculators is doing them in front of the patients because I've never had a calculator change my mind, right? But I've had it change a patient's mind, you know, as to whether or not they're going to follow the advice that you're trying to give them. That's a fantastic point. And the beauty of showing them is then they can go home and they can play around with it. They know exactly why you're making the recommendations to do. But Dr. Bacchus makes a fantastic point about engaging the patient in this shared decision-making. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Backus. That kind of keeps it focused on the patient, but also using it as a patient education tool. So that's a great suggestion. Dr. Farja, a lot of your research relates to nodule management. You're somebody I think we all turn to for your expertise on nodule management. What do you think the best practices for nodule management in a screening program? And what does your program do successfully and Where would you say your program falls short? Yeah, I'm a little biased by our local program. So I think our best practice for nodule management, whether it's screen detected or incidentally detected lung nodules, is a 
multidisciplinary team of chest radiologists, pulmonologists, and thoracic surgeons who review patients in a tumor board-like style before the patients are seen, but also a group of physicians that anchor their recommendations to a national practice guideline, including the ones that have been mentioned, for instance, American College of Radiology, American College of Chest Physicians, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and the Fleischner Guidelines. It's important to acknowledge that the evidence base for nodule management is limited. But in the context of that limited evidence, national guidelines offer clinicians an ability to standardize their approach, which safeguards against unwarranted variation in care. But that said, most of us that actually take care of patients know that the person sitting in front of us doesn't always fit into that neat box that's sometimes painted by the guidelines. So an example of that is a person who's at high risk for lung cancer, but the nodule has radiographic features of another diagnosis, like fungus or sarcoid. So in these complex cases, which seem to happen more often than I had ever anticipated, access to a multidisciplinary team can help guide the evaluation of that patient, especially when you're intentionally going to deviate from a practice guideline. And so in that way, I think our program meets this best practice. But, you know, our institution falls short because referral to this clinic of ours, the Lung Cancer Early Detection and Prevention Clinic, is optional. And there are good reasons for this, including the preservation of continuity of care and autonomy of care provided by primary care physicians and some pulmonologists. But I think this challenge is true for any institution, and it's bridging the key strengths of primary care, specialty care, and population health. Okay. And I appreciate that initial discussion about nodules and the role of surgeons in nodule assessment. Dr. Bacchus, I'm going to turn it back to you. And what things do you worry about in terms of either inefficiencies or maybe errors if a surgeon isn't involved in kind of decisions about whether to follow or biopsy or maybe remove a lung nodule? Yeah, I think my biggest concern is not necessarily even the substance of the recommendation necessarily that the patient may be given by someone other than a surgeon, but it's when they receive information that's actually misinformation about the surgery or what have you or potential intended treatment or next steps, because it is so hard to undo that. I mean, if your opinion differs, either you come across as being nonchalant or you come across as being overzealous about surgery. Like either way, you're kind of pitted against some mountain of misinformation that you may be trying to forge an uphill battle against. So that's why it's important to be doing all of this within the context of a team, right? Like Dr. Farge said, you know, you've got your whole game plan laid out before you've even seen the patient. Everybody's already on the same page. And I don't mean that to say, obviously, like we're all in cahoots or something, right? But we've already hashed out all the nuances and this is what we've settled upon. And I think, again, being patient-centered, having that degree of certainty and consistency with the way that the message is being delivered is critical towards patient compliance, patient confidence, patient self-efficacy, all the things that are going to lead to a better experience for that patient. So I guess those are the things that I really worry about the most. Maybe just let me pick one area, which is technical aspect of how a biopsy is going to be done. If a choice is that a lesion should be biopsied, what role does the surgeon have in helping the team choose between a variety of biopsy options in terms of optimizing those options? 
Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no substitute for parasurgical eyes looking at someone's imaging and giving an opinion on the technical ability to be able to perform something or what would be recommended. I used to give a lecture, a favorite lecture at the University of Washington to the radiology residents, and it was looking at chest CTs with the eye of a surgeon. Because often you get reports and whatnot. This is, of course, outside of the context of a team where they'll say, oh, this is, you know, a mediastinal lymph node. And so immediately then the referral is for a mediastinoscopy. But it's not really a mediastinal lymph node. It's really a hyalur node, or it's an AP window node, which is inappropriate for mediastinoscopy and those sorts of things. So there's a tremendous amount of room for, I don't want to say error, but differences of interpretation that the only way to get around that is to have a surgeon actually engage early on to be able to talk about feasibility. You've got a nodule that's read as a peripheral lung nodule. Well, there's peripheral and there's not so peripheral. And there's peripheral pure ground glass, which you can't palpate or something that's going to need some sort of fiducial or localization technique to be able to get to, et cetera. So anyway, I'm being redundant here, but there are lots and lots of reasons why surgeons have a different eye with which we view things. Well, obviously you're preaching to the choir here, but I appreciate (laughs) that's why I ask you the question. But I'm going to take part of your question and pivot to Dr. Farja on this aspect of biopsy. Do all nodules need to be biopsied? Is there sometimes a role for removing a nodule rather than biopsying it? Would some consider that too aggressive? Or what would be your indications of a spot in the lung that ought to be biopsied and one that maybe would be considered directly for surgery? Yeah, I mean, I think there are at least three things to consider before even getting at that decision of biopsy the lung versus surgery without biopsy. I promise to answer your question, but I want to mention these three things. And the first is it goes without saying, perhaps, that the patient should be at high risk for lung cancer. And second, in patients with suspected lung cancer, they should undergo staging with a CT and PET. And in those that have evidence of nodal disease or disease outside the chest or suspicious pleural paracardial cardiac effusion, then the patient should have a biopsy of one of those non-lung sites first. And the reason to pursue one of those non-lung sites first is because with one biopsy, you could establish the diagnosis and stage of lung cancer and obtain sufficient tissue for comprehensive biomarker testing. And in the context of screening, we don't want to think that sometimes stage four is found upon screening, but sometimes it is and sometimes locally advanced diseases. So we have to, in my opinion, approach the patients in that matter. And the last thing is that the patient should undergo a guideline-recommended physiologic set of tests and an evaluation by a surgeon. And the reason for that testing and evaluation is sometimes the downstream treatment decisions will inform the upfront biopsy and diagnosis decisions. So let me finally take a stab at your question, (laughs) but I felt like I had to get that in. And so if you have a patient who's at high risk of lung cancer, and let's say they don't have any evidence of nodal distant or advanced disease, then I would do a biopsy in at least several scenarios, meaning a biopsy first before surgery or before any other treatment. And one is when you have a patient who is at high risk of lung cancer, but also has an equally probable diagnosis, again, sarcoid or fungus or something that you would not want to operate on. Another reason is someone who's inoperable and they need to be treated with radiation. And the third reason is you have a lung nodule 
individual that's not amenable to an excisional biopsy with either a wedge resection or segmentectomy. And the reason for that is, in my opinion, thoracic surgeons should avoid a diagnostic lobectomy unless all other options have been exhausted in a patient with a strong suspicion of lung cancer. So when would I do surgery first? I do surgery first without a biopsy in someone who's at high risk for lung cancer. They have a suspicious lesion and you can take it out by an excisional biopsy, whether it's a wedge or a segment. And what's your rationale to when the patient says, my pulmonologist said I should get a biopsy first? The issue with a biopsy is that if you have a high suspicion for lung cancer and the biopsy comes back negative, you're in a little bit of a pickle because what are you going to do? Are you going to believe the biopsy and tell the patient, congratulations, you don't have lung cancer? Are you going to image them or are you going to take them to surgery? Oftentimes, if your suspicion is truly high, the next move is to say you need to operate. So when I see patients in clinic, I tell them all paths lead to surgery. (laughs) And we also have to remember that biopsies are not without risks. You know, biopsy can cause hemorrhage, it can cause a collapsed lung, and that can result in a hospitalization. So I think the broader point is we should absolutely do diagnostic tests, but only when they impact treatment decisions. And in the case that you just asked about, it's not going to change what's going to happen Yeah, I think the point that you're emphasizing is that the biopsy, besides the risk it has, takes time and has costs associated as other things that affect the patient and timeliness of treatment. And if it's not going to change the intent to remove the nodule, it does not become a useful test. So Dr. Varghese, when we're talking about lung nodules now, There's a very real aspect that when we're finding lung nodules on lung cancer screening, some are going to look like cancer, but not be cancer. And that results in some component of removal, including with surgery, surgery removal of lung nodules that are benign, that are something else. I have a couple of questions for you regarding this. What would be an acceptable rate? I mean, I think we all recognize we can't be 100% perfect. We're not going to get every lung cancer and not touch anything benign. What would you think is a reasonable rate for us to aim for as thoracic surgeons? And what are the downsides in the big picture of higher rates of benign nodule removal? You know, the ideal rate should be zero, but we all know we live in an imperfect world. I mean, I think that the goal should be to aim for a rate less than 1%, but it's a moving target. If it's okay with you, I want to quote a very famous surgeon who was the senior author on the STS task force on CT screening in an article published in 2013. His name is Dr. Wood, Doug Wood. And he said that the task force believes that the involvement of a thoracic surgeon will assist in minimizing unnecessary surgical procedures and procedure-related morbidity. Because I think that's really the crux of the whole issue. It's one thing for a patient to undergo a surgical procedure, but any surgical procedure has its risks. And so the higher you go in terms of the rate of unnecessary procedures, that's increasing those risks for those patients, which is not a good thing. I mean, my biased opinion, I mean, I think all of us are health services researchers. I do think this appropriateness of care is going to emerge as a major issue in the years ahead. And it's something that we have to be very thoughtful of and keep an eye on. And then you alluded to it, Dr. Wood, you know, the negative aspects of it. I mean, a lot of the pushback that came from endorsing lung cancer screening in the first place was that people were criticizing that it was leading to unnecessary procedures. And I think the great news is those fears have been overcome in terms of at least officially endorsing lung cancer screening. 
but it's something we have to be very mindful for. So that's just my personal opinion. I think we should be aiming for less than 1%. Maybe the honest answer is we don't know, but you know, we should keep striving for perfection, even if we don't ever achieve it. Well, Dr. Varghese, you never cease to impress and worry me with your background research. <laughs> yeah, thank you for digging that up. And I appreciate your thoughtful comments on this and well-resourced. So just to wrap things up, I'm going to ask each of you really maybe to give me one sentence advice to your thoracic surgeon colleagues about their involvement in lung cancer screening. Dr. Bacchus, I'll give you the first word. I would say to just get yourself involved. Like if you feel like it's too heavy of a lift to otherwise kind of lead a program and that sort of thing, you should certainly be able to be just a critical member of the program and that your knowledge is going to be additive and complementary to those around you. And as Dr. Farja commented on earlier, you're going to learn a lot actually about the multidisciplinary approach to patients, all of which are going to just result in better patient care. So there should really be zero downside. And again, a big kudos to the whole telemedicine thing in terms of ease and ability to be able to attend these conferences. You may not have to drive 50 miles or whatever to go to outline clinics and that sort of thing. You may be able to simply video conference in, but yet be a valuable participant in these discussions. So get involved in any shape form or fashion. <laughs> All right, Dr. Varghese, what are you going to tell your colleagues about lung cancer screening? Yeah, I'm going to extend Dr. Varghese's analogy and quote a very famous visionary by the name of Yoda. Do or do not, there is no try. Get involved. I mean, don't dabble on the side. Please stop pretending around. I mean, I think that we have to get involved. We have to be all in on this or we're going to be marginalized and not be involved in any of the care of patients. But we have to be serious about the effort. Okay, Dr. Farja, you're going to have almost the last word because I'm saving the last word for myself. But what's your advice to your thoracic surgeon colleagues and their involvement in lung cancer screening? So in addition to being an awesome thoracic surgeon, be an engaged partner who is empathetic to the needs and challenges of other stakeholders involved in lung cancer screening, including first and foremost, the patient. Well said. Well, just to finish with this, I'm going to make a comment that I think relates a lot to what we've been talking about and sums it up, at least in how I think about it in my mind. And it is rare that thoracic surgeons are gatekeepers. We usually have others that are gatekeepers in terms of how patients are referred to us. I've seen that actually in lung cancer screening, thoracic surgeons are gatekeepers both of the benefits of lung cancer screening and the harms of lung cancer screening both. So we have the critical aspect that we're the predominant practitioners, providers that provide the benefit of lung cancer screening because most of the reason we're doing lung cancer screening is to detect early stage lung cancer that's going to be removed by surgery. And that is our area of expertise. On the other hand, we also hold the keys to the harms of lung cancer screening, which is what Dr. Varghese was just talking about, which is unnecessary testing and unnecessary surgery for benign disease. So we also hold those keys. And if we can maximize one, maximize the benefits by early detection and getting more stage one lung cancers that we can cure and minimize the harms by not operating on people that 
don't have cancer, being willing to be slow and be more thoughtful in lung nodule workup, then we can help maximize how well lung cancer screening, first of all, gets accepted by the policymakers, primary care doctors and pulmonologists and patients, but also be most effective in our long-term goal of taking lung cancer victims and trying to make sure that they can become lung cancer survivors. Thank you to all of you for joining in this podcast and to the National Lung Cancer Roundtable and the American College of Radiology for sponsoring this series. Plural Space is a joint production by the American College of Radiology and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Episodes were produced by Hannah Burson, with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. A webinar on this episode's topic, as well as additional information, can be found at the link in the episode description. (laughs) 